The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. You have tuned in to The Glenn Show. I am Glenn Lowry. And I am delighted to be able to wish you a happy new year, 2024. It will be 2024 when you see this post. If you are a regular, you know that John McWhorter, my conversation partner, and I talk on a bi-weekly basis, and we are scheduled to post new content this week. Unfortunately, for circumstances beyond our control, we're unable to do that. And besides, it's the holidays. We deserve a break and we're going to take one. So instead of a fresh conversation, we'll be back in two weeks. We're posting a review of some of the highlights of our performances over the course of the calendar year 2023. And I do hope that you will enjoy them. We'll be back in two weeks. For those of you who are paying subscribers to glennlowry.substack.com, thank you. The Glenn Show appreciates it very much. For those of you who are subscribers but are not paying subscribers, we encourage you to consider moving in to the inner circle of the Glenn Show community where you will have the benefit of seeing our post on a Monday each week instead of on the Friday of that week and where you will be able to participate in the comment section and the question and answer sessions that John and I do on a monthly basis. On behalf of the Glenn Show team, that's me. That's my lovely wife, Lawan Lowry, whom you see from time to time. And we are working on producing another dimension of the Glenn Show where she and I will collaborate. More to come on that. And the support staff of uh, Nikita Petrov, who is our creative director, Mark Sussman, who is our editor, and Lucas Sluzar, who is our tech guy, helping to produce The Glenn Show. We all say thank you. I don't want to leave off Maya Rakoff, who is my intern and uh, scheduling assistant at The Glenn Show, a wonderful student here at Brown University. We, the team of The Glenn Show, wish everybody a happy 2024. Blessings to you all, and thank you for your attention. I want to drill down on the point. Okay, so here's <laughs> McWhorter. McWhorter says the issue is the test. Okay, when it all is boiled down to it, the issue is the blacks and the Latinos, especially the blacks, are getting low scores on average on the tests. And all of this smoke, all of this stuff they've thrown up in the air is a cover for the terrifying possibility that we might not be that smart on average. Now, I assume the McWhorter that I know and love thinks we actually are on average, at least in our basic inherent capacities as smart. But he doesn't I want know. us to be exempted from having to certify that we actually have command over the material by doing the test. Okay. So this dodge that people are willing to engage in about getting rid of the test where they really are living in bad faith, they're, they're, not, they're not actually facing the existential challenge. They're, they're, not, they're not taking life seriously in a way. I'm putting words in your mouth now, but this is what I hear. And you're, not, you're just not going to stand for it. And uh, what I want to ask you is, how do you know it's not true that we're not as smart if we're not doing that well on the test? Yeah, that's I mean, a legitimate yeah, I, that's, a, a, that's a legitimate question, and we're going to get in trouble for even discussing it. But anybody who thinks we can't discuss it as being religious and not logical. Yeah. How do how do I know? And you know what? I don't yeah. know. However, I sense it very powerfully from my experience with people of all colors over the past 57 years. And I don't think that we've been given a chance to show 
what we can do. And, you know, one thing that makes it rather clear to me is, as we've discussed, kids of African and Caribbean ancestry have much less of a problem with this sort of thing than black American kids. I don't know of data that show that a Nigerian immigrant's kid does better on those sorts of tests, but I know anecdotally that it is certainly true that, you know, these things like the SAT don't throw that kid as easily as they throw a native-born black American kid. And frankly, it's the same genes, or if anything, here in America, there's more mixture with white people. And so for me, that is one piece of evidence that it's cultural. And, you know, this is is very anecdote, but I'm going to use it because I was thinking it as I saw it. On my way... um, I'm not going to, yeah, I can. On my way back from Antwerp, on the back from Brussels, I had occasion to be near um, a guy. And he was, you could tell from, you know, little things he would say to the flight attendant, you know, tea or coffee or something like that. He's a black American man. He wasn't, he wasn't African. He wasn't Caribbean. He's from Cleveland or something. And he's on the plane. It was a seven and a half hour flight. I happened to notice that this guy had no reading material of any kind, never picked any up. He didn't have a he didn't have a Kindle or anything like that. He didn't read the whole time. He didn't watch a movie. He didn't watch any TV. At one point, he picked up the little thing that shows pictures of what you're supposed to do if the plane crashes, as if anybody would be alive down there to do it. But he takes a look at that, and then he takes a look at the magazine, but he never really reads it. That guy just sat there the whole time, often just looking off into space. And he wasn't that sleepy. He wasn't sleeping most of the time. (laughs) And you know what? what Now, there could have been any number of things going on. But I remember looking at him and thinking, he's not interested in anything whatsoever. He doesn't have any interest. He's a human being without any interest. And it got me thinking, you know, I wonder wonder if he grew up in a home where he was never pointed towards anything in the natural give and take of things. What's interesting? What do you look at? What do you pay attention to? In his upbringing, clearly nothing much. Now, that may not have been a black story. It may have just been him, but I remember right. thinking the difference here, I'm very close to done. The difference here is that you imagine South Asian kids growing up where even if their parents aren't intellectuals, there's a sense just from intonation, you better do well on that test. You have to worry about that test. I don't think that that guy's parents spoke that way. They didn't say don't pay attention to the test, but they weren't telling him to be interested in anything. Now, I'm, I'm on thin ice here because I don't know anything about this person, but it got me thinking about how people are raised what interests you? Yeah, That's culture. I, That's not I, his brain or his IQ, you know? I admire your courage and your candor because, you know, you are kind of out there on a limb. You're talking about culture and people get mad at you. And you're and it's anecdotal. Mm-hmm. You're telling a story about a particular person. You don't have systematic data. So they'll yeah, say you don't one know guy I don't about. even know. Yeah. Although it, it has the power of the novelist anecdote in the sense that, you know, the vivid, uh, concrete illustration captures something that we all know from our common sense lived experience, as it were, is true about, it's true about people. And I expect the, the generalization that you're making uh, across racial ethnic lines is broadly true. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's hard to deny that. Uh, but I, I want to step back a little bit because I, I, I want to distinguish between this argument, the causal argument, we have differences in performance on the test. What are the rudimentary bases of these? Is it, you know, some kind of genetic thing going on? Is it a cultural thing going on? The, the causal argument, and we could argue about that all day, but there's a difference between that and the kind of the philosophical kind of existential, I keep wanting to use that word again because I'm thinking about the existentialist, you know, I'm thinking about the idea of, you know, living up to the uh, possibilities of your freedom, you know, about about being honest with yourself about life and the idea that you don't know for sure about the inferiority question uh, about the question okay they're doing less well on the test how do you know it's because they're not just on average less intelligent you don't believe it i don't believe it you don't want to believe it but you don't know and the 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 the, the temptation the the temptation to run from the inescapable necessity of demonstrating your competence both to others and to yourself by embracing this narrative of historical victimization and this this kind of you think you get an exemption you know this this kind of uh uh i'm going to trump 
your performance card with my moral claim, my, my, my claim of, you know, anti-racism in this case. Uh, the equity move that you are that you're critiquing is is in a way a kind of try to play that card, that card that the historical mistreatment of my people therefore entitles me to be exempt from, you know, your enforcing of a certain standard of judgment. Um, and and I, I think there's no way around that dilemma, the, the dilemma of having to demonstrate your competency. I mean, if I were to say on a banner or a bumper sticker, black people have something to prove that we're not more criminal, that we don't neglect our children, that we're just as smart as anybody else. We have the burden of dispelling the suppositions about us that some people are inclined to uh, arrive at based upon what they see in the world. And, and we don't, that's respectability politics. They have a name for it. I mean, the idea that you would even take that up. Uh, so I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things that terrifies me about getting rid of the test is it, it like it concedes. It, 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 it calls the whole thing off when we haven't actually done the job yet. Yeah, that's exactly and it. And that's not equality, man. That is so far from equal dignity, from a sense of equal standing, from being able to look people in the eye and, and, and feel confident within yourself that you're their peers. That's horrible. It is. What's going on? You say uh, I'm always referring to the riots of 2020. Well, the riots of 2020 were historic events. Uh, probably in the long run, more uh, salient in the undercurrents of American politics than the riot of January 6, 2021. Do you know how many guns people went out and acquired in the aftermath of that civil disorder? Do you know how many police unions have become stronger in their local communities because of the uh, defund the police movement and so forth and so on? Uh, do you know how many people are questioning uh, whether or not the integrity of our major institutions like our courts uh, can be relied upon when mobs form outside of courthouses, et cetera, et cetera? Um, the de-policing movement has cost probably thousands of black lives, according to some studies by re reputable people like Roland Fryer at Harvard, uh, because police have pulled back uh, in the wake of the uh, delegitimation and the wholesale attacks on, on their uh, being able to do their jobs that has flowed in the in the face of you this. mean the Ferguson effect and then Baltimore a little after that yeah yeah and, yeah and police withdrawing in effect going and strike in place because they're saying if you don't have my back I'll be damned if I stick my neck out um, anyway that's somewhat speculative but I mean I think the evidence is more than uh, casual to the effect that that has had a uh, adverse reaction in terms of public safety in in the big cities um, retail. Are you going to invest $100 million in the middle of the south side of Chicago? Uh, Ken Griffin and Citadel picked up their multi-billion dollar hedge fund empire and moved it to Miami from Chicago because their employees didn't feel safe on the streets downtown. Who are committing those crimes? Now, I think we have to get our heads out of the sand here. Race relations will not get better through denial. There's something profoundly wrong in the social fiber of a community when that kind of behavior is commonplace. Now, did it get that way because people are bad people? No. Am I uh, a racial essentialist thinking that uh, black culture is somehow fundamentally flawed? No. How did seventy and seven and ten kids born to a woman without a husband come to be through complex historical dynamics, much of which had little to do with black people or black culture per se? But nevertheless, nevertheless, the kid is 15, 16 years old. The kid has a pistol. The kid is not parented. 
and there's a thousand of them on the street. Now that's failure. That is a failure of the socialization of young people to the norms of civility that are essential to the preservation of our way of life. Is it their fault? I don't give a fuck whose fault it is. We are going to have to deal with the reality that this is a social dysfunction. It needs to be addressed. Now, pat formulae, like, oh, there's not enough opportunity in those communities. That's what the new mayor of Chicago said. He said, I'm not going to demonize kids who are uh, deprived of opportunity in their own communities. There's not enough opportunity in the communities. There should be more opportunity. Okay, I'll get on that bandwagon. Let there be more opportunity for people who are marginalized. I'm for that. Now, now that we're finished with that uh, sermon, what are you actually going to do to raise those kids? To inculcate in them orientations, patterns of behavior, values and norms, expectations and the internalization of restraints that makes it possible for them to actually avail themselves of any opportunity that might otherwise be provided. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about the schools? What are you going to do about early childhood education? What are you going to do about order and law? So, so we can burn the messenger. We can shoot the messenger, call him Tucker Carlson, and let's get our racist card out if we want to. But in this country, 330 million people, which is remaking itself every decade, if we don't somehow address the failure manifest by these kinds of violent and antisocial behaviors that are pathological, I repeat myself, I'm not afraid to say it. Cancel me if you want to. But I'm going to stay in touch with reality. Everything changed once you and I started screaming in the summer of 2020. And there's now a young cadre of linguists. It's not very many people, but who have decided that I'm one of the field's public enemies, number one, because I am anti-woke and talk about wokeness in such a such a con- contemptful way that they feel insulted and they don't want me representing them. And they don't like that I represent linguistics to, you know, the the world and the United States to the extent that I do. And that's fine in itself, but it's meant that, for example, the Linguistic Society of America stripped me of my publicity committee headship because of the demands of this particular group. The idea being that I'm just too radioactive to head a committee. And, you know, the sad thing about this is that it's because of how I feel about these issues as opposed to grammatical analysis and things that linguists study and or there's nothing that sociolinguists think or do that I've ever had any problem with. It's that I'm just not cool. And as you can imagine, you know, none of these claims make a dent in me. They're wrong. It's as simple as that. But it does mean that, um, you know, I used to host something called Five Minute Linguist, where it's this kind of game show for linguistics. I was the person who would emcee it. And to be Honest, I'm good at that kind of thing. It it was a good event. And no one ever said anything outright, but I no longer host it. They've got somebody else who's much more correct than I am doing it. And I've had to let my membership lapse. And I haven't been public about it. I didn't make any big noise, but I'm no longer a member of the Linguistic Society of America. And it's because of how I feel about George Floyd and reparations and cultural appropriation and the theatricality of wokeness. Now, my career is not affected. I'm not going to lose my job. But I was going through all these books and I was thinking, wow, not only am I never going to have the place in academic linguistics that I had before, but I thought in Creole studies, Creole studies is completely choked by wokeness teaching that you're not allowed to say certain things. You're not allowed to say that Haitian Creole is a complex language, just like any language, but because it's new, it's not as complex as French. You're not allowed to say that. And if you do say it, you're a pariah. And I kind of thought, I've been studying Creole languages now for 34 years. I am frankly one of the world's maybe 100 experts 
on those languages. And once again, I'm not an absolute pariah. I'm the book review editor of the leading journal in Pidgin and Creole Studies. I get invited to the occasional Creole thing, but you know, that's actually only from my posse. I'm not invited by anybody else. And in general, most people in the Creole studies field think of me as somebody who is clever, but who is just not with the program. And of course, the worst thing about things like this is that nobody who thinks that of you actually reads your work because they think it wouldn't be worth it to put forth the effort. But, you know, I haven't said half of the things that I think I say. I entered this field in my late 20s thinking of myself as studying something interesting and trying to make a little bit of noise. And in a way, it was a failure because here I am in this subfield where it's considered the good thing to roll your eyes at the mention of my name. And I've done a lot of work. I've written books. I've written articles. I'm proud of them. I think everybody thinks of me as somebody who has a certain solidity. But I'm just wrong, according to, say, nine out of ten of them. And the simple fact is I'm not, and there's nothing I'll ever be able to do about it. I think you're better than me on this because you wouldn't think this about your economics. Like, there's some black economists who don't like you, but the field in general has great respect for you. Linguistics, you know, if people say over 70 get me because they're not as affected by these politics. <laughs> it's about, it's the people who are getting on, if I may. But in general, I will probably right. never again be invited by a linguistics department to give a talk on my work. That has dried up after 2020 completely. It's only Europe now. We are more exotic. And I am kind of thinking, I love linguistics, but it no longer loves me and it never will. Thanks for sharing, my brother. <laughs> And I, and I feel for you. I feel you and I feel for you. Now, politics is no stranger to linguistics. I mean, I'm thinking of the case of the great Noam Chomsky, you know, father of universal grammar. And I gather the theoretician who gives a foundation to Pinker's speculation about the in inherent nature of linguistic facility mm -hmm. in humans. But uh, he had a politics or has. He's still with us. Noam Chomsky has he's, he's got a sharp elbow politics, but they, they don't mind him. Well, they don't mind him because, of course, he's hard, hard left. So he's he's just correct, as opposed to Pinker uh, and me, who are are centrist empiricists, and therefore, you know, we're, we're not going to drink the Kool Aid, and that's considered a problem. Another one is George Lakoff, who has never I've been as big a name as Pinker, but once again, his politics are classic, you know, almost old left, and so he doesn't offend anybody with his politics, as opposed to we we contrarians. So, yeah. Well, I don't suffer the same fate. No, I am appreciated by my colleagues. But when the American Economics Association puts out a recommended syllabus for reading on race and inequality, do you know that <laughs> your humble servant's life labor with article after article in the top five journals and with books to, to boot are somehow not mentioned <laughs> by the association because the committee to whom was delegated the responsibility to draft that syllabus is dominated by the usual suspects of the DEI brigades. And Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry have no place within their, you know, halls of, uh, of uh, canonical reference. <laughs> Damn. It's just, it's not, it's not right. That's really just not right. Or, you know, we can complain mutually. Black English <laughs> is something else. But not for long, folks. We're not going to do this all, all program. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Black English is the same thing. In terms of teaching the public about why Black English is cool, I've now played a major role at this point. And yet I read things written by people on Black English, both pop and not. And you can tell that they cringe to ever mention my name despite the fact that now I've got kind of a stack of writings about it because I'm bad. And that, you know, life goes on. They like your position. If I understand your position, it's that it's a language. It's, it's got a lot of complexity and nuance to it. It's not mistaken or broken English. It has its own uh, kind of uh, inherent uh, dynamic. Uh, not and, good enough because I don't understand societal racism and therefore I'm bad. And yeah. therefore even the work that they agree with they don't want to spread it around too much because they don't want to call attention to my name. We are in the presence of a major scholar in his field, everybody. He's not tooting his own horn, but we should, you know, oh, you pause know, for a moment. <laughs> one other thing I want to get in. Economics values you for what you do because of its quality. I doubt 
that even if I were considered a wonderful person with the politics of a rose, that linguistics in general would evaluate my work on the level that yours is. So I don't want to make it sound like I just assume that I am this top level linguist who would be getting all these accolades. The issue is that I get none at this point, that I don't get anything, whereas I watch people who frankly have not produced as much or had as many ideas as you say. And, you know, sometimes they they've had even longer than I have to prove it getting these basic kinds of accolades, whereas I get nothing. And that are, nothing are, is a statement at this point. Are you a fellow of the American Academy? Of the what? American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Nobody would ever put me up for that, at, at least not from my own field. That's the sort of thing that I mean. So, yeah, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't happen. Oh, uh, you're you're worthy of that honor, John. Columbia University's provost office should have a functionary whose job it is to maximize the number of honorific societies to which their faculty members get pointed. I know Brown University has one. I, I know a lot of places have them because, you know, these society things uh, help to contribute to the prestige. Somebody ought to put, put a process in motion. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, so I, I'm thinking of the stereotyping point. As I recall, uh, ju- the structure of Justice Roberts' uh, opinion, where he finds against uh, Harvard and the University of North Carolina uh, and finds that racial affirmative action is practiced there, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This cannot be overemphasized. This is very important. The structure of the argument there is it's being undertaken on behalf of objectives that are virtually immeasurable and unverifiable. You tell me diversity promotes the pedagogic mission of the university, but you can't really show me how. You make various assertions about university preparing a diverse leadership for the future of the country, but the links between what you're doing at the admissions office and the achievement of those goals is tenuous. Uh, it's, It's hard to see. So how can this be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling interest when it's uh, virtually impossible for judicial review to ascertain whether or not those objectives are being met? You know, this kind of thing. Uh, I thought that was, you know, a a, a very sort of central point. Uh, He says the court's only allowing affirmative action if it's uh, use of race uh, in uh, this kind of uh, decision, if it's not used as a negative against any racial group. And how can you say it's not being used as a negative against Asians? Admissions is a zero-sum activity. If you let in some on a special dispensation, there are others who are not going to be let in in virtue of that special dispensation. And manifestly, that's the case of Asians. He actually has a table, in his opinion, that's taken right out of Peter R.C. Diakono's brief, which stratifies the different levels of academic qualification and compares the admissions rates across the racial groups. And it's absolutely devastating. So Asians are being discriminated against. And this is ironic, right, that this is a non-white group that are alleging injury on behalf of a program that is supposed to be undertaken to benefit non-whites. And you have to now parse. You have to parse between an African-American from a family with two college graduates and professional lives living in a leafy suburb somewhere who happens to be African-American and an Asian-American applicant from a possibly a two-bedroom apartment somewhere in a, in a tenement that's uh, scraping out a, a bare living, but the kid has somehow managed to ace the test. And to use the blackness and Asianness as the defining characteristics of those two people in my hypothetical and, and argue in favor of the one over the other based on the blackness or the Asianness of them is stereotyping. It's not any longer an individual assessment. It's taking people as if they were avatars of some abstract category and then chopping their rights up based upon that. And this is, this is gut-level stuff. This is very, very basic stuff. So what is Randy Kennedy's retort to, uh, this is the second prong of Justice Roberts' four-point uh, rejection of affirmative action, the first prong, being it's on behalf of indefinite objectives, but the second problem being that it's necessarily injurious to some people on basis of their race. How does he get around the fact that that would appear on its face to be a violation of the 14th Amendment? 
Well, in um, our discussion, it didn't happen to come around to that specific prong. I'm sure that he has a coherent answer. But obviously, what you're saying is simply true. You didn't just express an opinion. You just expressed a truth. And anybody who's following these issues knows it. And yet, what people do is they, they always put their hand back behind their neck and look off into the distance. And they'll <laughs> say something like, well, the thing is, we've got to bring black people into opportunity. And if you don't go to Yale or Harvard then apparently you don't have any access to opportunity. I've been seeing so many op-ed pages saying variations on that. And it comes down to something very simple, which the person going like this knows very well. There are so many schools. Let's go to SUNY Purchase. Let's go to any one of the Cal states. Let's go to one of those, one of those universities that has Wesleyan in its name in the Midwest. <laughs> Could you say to the staff there, working their butts off to get their seniors into jobs as lucrative and promising as possible. All the people who are there trying to shunt their graduates into being productive and successful members of society. Could you say to them, you know, it's too bad that it doesn't work here. You know, you're at UC Santa Cruz and, you know, all these black and Latino students are cut off from opportunity. It's too bad they didn't get to go to Rice or Stanford or Yale. Everybody knows that's a ridiculous cartoon. Is it really true? And, folks, for the comments section, yes, Archidiakono et al. have been answered by the economist Zachary Bleemer. And Zachary Bleemer's <laughs> work has gotten around as if it kind of deep-sixed Archidiakono. No, folks, and I'm sorry, we don't have time to read everything. I certainly don't. But read Bleemer. Read both of his papers. There, there's a second one. It doesn't do anything different than the first one in that the fact is this. The takeaway is this, after you look at all the, the tables. Did Prop 209, which ended racial preferences in California in the late 90s, lower the income of black and Latino people who are now, believe it or I can't believe it's been this long, they're now grownups married with children. Did it lower their incomes? Latinos, yes, somewhat. Although, of course, a little something called 2008 might have had something to do with it. But <laughs> black incomes were not lowered. The media wasn't interested in that. Prop 209, if you have any way of drawing some sort of link between Prop 209 and people's earnings 30 years later. I'm not sure I quite understood that, and I'm not sure it's because I'm not an economist. But if you do, <laughs> then, frankly, Black people stayed the same. So put your hand behind your neck and do that thing where you look over my shoulder. Those are the facts. And so what all I of this is— I just got to say this. As, as the economist in our bunch, I'm very impressed, John. I'm very impressed you're down in the weeds, man. Bleemer is, as I understand it, a graduate student of David Cards at Berkeley— and he's done this study of the impact of Proposition 209. It's a careful econometric investigation, and it's being held up as a defensive uh, affirmative action. And, but, but John is on top of it. He says he's got two papers, not just one. Card, by the read. way, was the expert witness for Harvard in the litigation, who was the opposite number to Peter Arcidiacono in that whole, uh, in that whole uh, contestation. But yeah, uh, the, the paper has been oversold. This is Bleemer's uh, work has, has been oversold by, by some of the defendants. Glenn, I didn't, nice, but I like quick, it. quick interruption. I didn't know he was yeah. a grad student. I, I didn't know that he was that young. And so now I'm feeling like I was talking too high and mighty. But frankly, it, it was oversold as making that point. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sure he's an assistant professor somewhere by now and that this project has been going on for years and it developed out of his, uh, out of his dissertation, this kind of thing. But... Uh, I want to come back to this point about how going to uh, State University of New York and purchase, if that's the uh, campus that you were referring to, is not exactly a death sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Versus to going to Cornell or something like that. It's not, it's not exactly the end of the world. No. And the elitism, and, and this comes through, and Justice Thomas does allow himself a little bit of uh, bitterness and, and a kind of sarcasm in, in some quarters of his report. I mean, for example, this is an aside to my main point about elitism, but I'll just say this. Thomas goes out of his way to point out that Harvard discriminated against Jews back in the day and that the University of North Carolina, the other defendant in this case, was an openly segregationist campus until, you know, the Jim Crow era got brought down. And he says, these are discriminators. Why should we trust them? They're, at, they're basically, they're asking to trust us. They're saying, look, we got this. We're creating a cadre of American leaders and we're going to make it diverse and everything's going to be fine. Trust us. And, it's, and Thomas is saying like, 
Why should we trust them? <laughs> this court has a long history of not trusting discriminators. I think he cites a bunch of cases all down the line, man. I mean, Tom, yeah, I know, people, are gonna, mm-hmm. people are going to get mad at Clarence Thomas. It, I'm just going to say this. And y'all can get mad at me if you want to. I found his opinion to be magisterial. I, I found the depth that he went into in expositing the, uh, the uh, legislative history of the 14th Amendment was comprehensive and, you know, it was historian-like in terms of the level of detail and completeness. And the argument that what the framers intended was that it be a non-discrimination, not an equalizing mandate, a mandate that restricts the state from using race to discriminate people, not an instrument to mitigate and rectify the consequences of historical exigency. You know, there's going to be an extensive ground campaign undertaken by Israeli military into the Gaza Strip to root out Hamas. It's going to be horrifically bloody. A lot of people are going to die. How does that, and the anticipation of that uh, necessary, is it necessary? Defensive, is it defensive? Um, Mobilization uh, by Israel against Hamas, which is deeply embedded, (laughs) dug in underground within the Gaza territory. How does that affect your thinking about this? I mean, because we're not anywhere near the end of this. Uh, we're we're not even at the end of the beginning of this. Uh, I, I shudder to think that um, the um, bitterness and the vitriol and and the hatred and the uh, animosity, enmity uh, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, will be sustained and amplified and entrenched as we go forward. Um, I don't know, do, do you share my foreboding here? I'm, I'm, I'm really, it's a dark, dark time that we're, that we're entering into here. It's horrible. It can only be less bad, and that's the best that it can be, and it can only be so much less bad. I mean, I... Even last time we talked, I was saying that I worry about the idea of going in and flattening Gaza. What would that do, especially since it would only bide time? I would say at this point that it seems to me that the idea, and listen to me, a non-expert on this situation, but it seems to me that as many people who live in Gaza should be gotten south and beyond as possible. But the tragedy is that Hamas is not going to stop that. There is nothing we can do to make them stop that. They are not the PLO. They don't want to sit at a table and negotiate. They want Israel to go away, and they're not going to stop wanting Israel to go away. And so to not try to exterminate them, I think it's become clear this time in particular, is to essentially settle for things maybe being calm for five years or 10 years, and then they're going to do it again. Glenn, I'm not sure I can say that You know, I'm someone who... Quakerism played a major role in my childhood, and even if it hadn't, I think I'd feel this way. War is hell. I would like to be a pacifist. Sometimes that just doesn't work because Hamas won't stop. And if they don't go in there and uproot Hamas, not Palestinians, but Hamas, then this is going to keep going. And so if it's possible to go in and seal off the tunnels and really make it so that There is no more Hamas, despite the fact that thousands of Palestinians and thousands of Israelis would die in the effort. I can't see any other way. And this is the test that I gave myself 20 years ago with Iraq. To say that I think we should do this, and I was mistaken about Iraq, Colin Powell and the media fooled me. I I thought we were going in there for a reason. I should have known better. But I remember thinking, if I'm going to espouse this, would I go? Would I go and get my legs blown off? And at the time, I said, yes, if this were, this were my effort, I would go in there because I really do worry about X, Y, and Z. 
And in this case, if I were Israeli, yeah. I mean, I think I'm maybe getting too old for it really to matter, but let's say I'm saying this at 35. Yeah. Because otherwise, Hamas isn't going to stop. And you can talk about why they're not going to stop, et cetera, but the fact is they're not. What else could be done other than going in and smoking them out? What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, I said I have a sense of foreboding, and, and I, I feel that I'm uh, looking over the precipice into a chasm that goes down very deep. And I, I think the word tragedy, historical tragedy, is apt. I, I'm no military expert, but I have been following a few of them as they comment on the uh, tactical uh, problem of actually rooting out Hamas in the Gaza territory. It's not even clear that it can be done. I mean, you can kill a lot of people, you can destroy a lot of infrastructure, but, you know, uh, do you end up with a even more fiercely mobilized uh, hatred of your uh, presence and, and a determination to resist and to fight? You're gonna, what are you going to do? You're going to kill them all? You're not going to kill them all. So there's that. Uh, again, I'm not an expert. People tell me that the risk of a wider regional war being precipitated by the slaughter that would ensue if a serious operation on the ground to root out Hamas were undertaken, the slaughter not of thousands, probably of tens of thousands, maybe of hundreds of thousands, um, that uh, one is playing with fire here. One doesn't know where, you know, second front in the north, Iran, Jordan, Turkey, et cetera. Um, this is how World War I started. Again, I'm not an expert. I'll say it for the last time. Uh, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, it's not something that I have mastery over, and I'm used to feeling mastery in the subjects that I discuss. But here we are. Uh, so there's bloodlust. Uh, maybe you've seen some of the comments, you know, about the revenge that needs to be wrought right. on those Palestinians, not just the fighters in Hamas, but, you know. Um, so uh, I'm depressed here uh, yeah, that, about this. That revenge is more laziness. That's the easy way out. You know, you resist that if you're trying to think on a higher level. And in everything that you're saying, yes, we're going beyond what we have any expertise in, in terms of what the wider ramifications might be. My impression is that Hezbollah would be a little easier as an enemy than Gaza. But I can't get away from if you don't go into Gaza now, and I don't know if anybody would have said this 10 years ago, but if you don't go in this time, they're going to do it again. And my reading has suggested that um, the idea is to eliminate most of the leadership, and to, to eliminate the tunnels. The tunnels blocked off, filled in, so that warfare has to be in the outside, and that will be pure hell, get as many of the civilians out as possible. But the tunnels make things especially hard. If that could be done relatively quickly, say six months, maybe that, even with the risk of larger repercussions, would be better than taking the higher road and leaving Gaza kind of under some sort of supervision, but it's the same old thing, with a new generation growing up with absolutely nothing to do. You know, they barely have jobs. They're penned into that area, for better or for worse, where what they live for, their whole sense of identity, is based on hating Israel. And then this will happen again. It'll be very easy to find men who are willing to die to kill more Israelis. I have the hardest time seeing that as what is the, the good thing to do now. But anybody getting blown up, horrible thing. That person has a family. That person valued their life as much as we do. And for it to happen in the thousands. But I, I'm not sure I see anything else. You're going to kill a lot of civilians. You're going to lose a lot of your own people. It's a door-to-door, block-to-block, basement-to-basement, tunnel-to-tunnel. Tactically, uh, it's a nightmare. I'm told. Again, I, I don't really have It's not like just doing here. it from the air. Yeah. And is it and politically, I imagine uh, the Israeli political establishment, the, the Netanyahu government and so on, the IDF. Have to come with a heavy hand 
yeah. just maintain their own their own legitimacy yeah. in the face of this horrific. Uh, this is the last government you would want to have behind this. Yes, exactly. And yet I'm sitting over here entertaining the idea of this kind of world historic uh, gesture of recognizing, looking three moves down the line, recognizing that there, at the end of the day, is no military solution to this problem. There is only a political solution. That's the only thing that's going to stick somehow. Uh, the land between the river and the sea has to be divided somehow uh, between Israeli and Palestinian. Uh, I have no idea how that's going to be accomplished, but my gut is telling me that you say it'll happen again, it'll happen again anyway without the political solution. So this world historic gesture would be to forbear. Uh, course, there has to be some response, but we would be not to have it at the scale that roots out every tunnel and uh, ferrets out every fighter and, and quote, eliminates them. Um, to, uh, you know, and I don't know, I'm gonna stop. The longer I talk, the more trouble I'm going to get myself into, because I'm speculating off the top of my head. In 2016, we did one of these where I learned from you via our friend Peter Moskos that the whole business of black men being at a unique risk of being killed by white cops is vastly distorted, that these things happen to white people too. I always thought, as as un-PC and unwoke as I supposedly am, I thought that the general narrative about black people and the cops was true, and I written about it now for 25 years and said, it's the last thing standing. It's the chimney that didn't burn down when the rest of the house did, et cetera. And then uh, you taught me that that needs a rethinking. On this one, in 2020, we talked about how every one of these cases of a white cop killing a black man turns out to not be what we thought. So, you know, it wasn't that George Zimmerman tapped Trayvon Martin on the shoulder. Who, excuse me, was not a cop. He was not a cop. He was a citizen, but go ahead. Yeah, that's an important point. Didn't tap him on the shoulder and they had an argument and George Zimmerman shot him in the face. That's not what happened. George Zimmerman shot him with Trayvon Martin on top of him, seeming like he might be about to kill him, which is just different. Mike Brown did not die with his hands up. He was trying to grab the gun of Darren Wilson and was lunging at him over and over again. It's always like that. But I always thought that with the George Floyd case, you couldn't argue with the basic facts. It seemed that this white cop had his knee on this man's neck, which seems so barbaric, but that's what the photo that you always see looks like, and that he couldn't breathe because the knee was on his neck and that he choked and died of asphyxiation. That seemed to be the fact with various people connected to the Minneapolis police force saying that they were unfamiliar with this move, this business of putting the knee on the neck, that that's not part of their training. And so the issue was, you know, why did that happen to George Floyd? Has something like that ever happened to a white person? In this case, it was Tony Timpa, who was killed in a very similar way, not, you know, too long before George Floyd. But I always thought, Yes, I've been happy to see Derek Chauvin going to jail. I have written about him as a murderer many, many times. And then look, look at this. Once again, we've been lied to. And I, and the sad thing, Glenn, is that nobody, you know, left of center is going to admit that any of this could be valid. Truth will not matter on this one. I think that's a really important point. I wish we could come back to it. Uh, that is that the uh, epistemic dilemma that we're in of being able well to put. come to public agreement about what actually happened, and we're in a deep hole as a society because that's a you know that's a tough one. But I wanted to just call to mind the scene in the uh, documentary film that we're talking about called "The Fall of Minneapolis," which tells in an account sympathetic to the police officer's point of view, I think that should be said. It's not wrong for that. Uh, What happened in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd and its aftermath. I wanted to call to mind the scene where the interviewer is with 
Derek Chauvin's mother. The mother of the cop. The, the cop. The murderous cop. He has a mother. He's locked away for some interminable period of time. He got, you know, I can't even remember now, but I mean, it's hundreds of months. And Over 20 years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a long time. And uh, the, the mother is saying, here's the training manual. The training manual showing a certain maximal restraint technique of uh, immobilizing a recalcitrant suspect, which has a photograph in it of a man with his knee on the shoulder, not the neck, the shoulder, not in an asphyxiating, but in an immobilizing manner, just as when you see the body cam footage of Derek Chauvin in that position, it's very, very, very similar. This was not allowed to be introduced into evidence at trial. <laughs> the judge, who is depicted as having been biased against the cops in this documentary film, I don't know if that's true or false, but there is a point of view in the film. I think we have to acknowledge that. It's not wrong for being a point of view, but I think it's a point of view. Uh, I don't know the details about the judge who heard Derek Chauvin's case enough to be able to comment on whether or not he really is biased. I don't know that. The politics of Hennepin County, Minneapolis, Minnesota, I don't know that. But uh, the film does raise these kind of questions. A uh, police officer command of commanding rank testifies at trial that uh, that technique was not a part of the training when trainers who spent decades training Minneapolis cops affirmed that, of course, it was a part of the training. <laughs> Is this a trained Minneapolis Police Department technique? It is not. When I heard that, I really wanted to get up off my chair and yell, bullshit. So it's rather than a vicious, white, malicious, nigger-hating cop putting his knee on the neck of this poor, helpless man and strangling the life out of him, Something different from that actually happened. And, you know, you have to think, would he do that? You know, whatever kind of terrible person he supposedly is or was or could be, you put your knee on the person's neck? The idea being to asphyxiate the person or not knowing that that would be rather dangerous? It's the shoulder. And if you look at the picture... You can think if you're told that he put his knee on his neck, that it was the neck, but it's also the shoulder. And people, this is the important thing. This, this is so important. He's saying, I can't breathe. Okay. But one, there are three things. One, if he's saying it in that clear, strong voice, it would appear that he could breathe. Okay. So that was always a little strange. But maybe there's a point where you can say, I can't breathe, but you're getting dangerously little air. But still, that stands. Two, this is what's important. In the body cam footage, which we've never seen, George Floyd was saying, I can't breathe when he was standing up straight and just being coaxed to get into the car. What they were trying to do was take him somewhere to get treatment because the, the drugs were severely addling his mind. And he wouldn't get in the car. And he starts saying, breathing air, standing up. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. When nobody is anywhere near his neck or anything else. George Floyd was extremely high on fentanyl and meth to an extent that could have killed him sitting in a chair. If you're on fentanyl in particular, you get something called wooden chest where you can't breathe if you've got that much in you. That's how high he was. Now, the issue is not the morality of him being high, but he was saying, I can't breathe long before anybody had him on the ground. And then the third thing is this. What a lot of people are going to say is look at the agony of his face in the standard photo. It looks like he, he, he can't breathe. He's in agony. That grimace that we see is something that does move you. But if you look at the body cam footage we've never seen, George Floyd had that exact same look on his face when the cops just approached his car and said, get out. He was really messed up that night. I'm not moralizing. Just because I'm wearing a cardigan doesn't mean that I don't understand the joy of drugs and liquor. But he was majorly <laughs> fucked up. 
And it was the day, as, it was during the day. It was not at night. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm making it at night. But it's it's in daylight. And he the cops come up and he's just oh God oh don't shoot me. And nobody has a gun. You know I I just lost my mother. His mother died years ago. Don't you know don't don't. They weren't threatening him at all. He was really really messed up, and he had that same look on his face. So I don't think unless this is faked. You know here we are in the age of AI. I mean, we have to allow that just maybe. But unless that body cam footage is fate, Derek Chauvin didn't kill that man. I never thought I'd be saying that. But it appears to be true. Let's move on to the last clip. Now, uh, the Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show in 2023. But in 2007, I was well ensconced in my... Uh, position at Brown University, and I kind of had a snooty attitude about places like the Manhattan Institute, because they, after all, were not Brown University. Uh, and <laughs> John has just resigned his tenure at UC Berkeley and has taken up a position at the Manhattan Institute, and so uh, I share my misgivings, and he uh, gives his defense. <laughs> Let's play that, that last clip. You're dissing you're dissing us, John, by turning your back on the academy. You make it sound like nothing special is going on over here, that, uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute is our equal. Mm-hmm. We don't think so. Mm-hmm. We <laughs> think the Manhattan Institute and other such places, <laughs> fine places that they are, making a contribution, are nevertheless not as clever as we are, not as mm-hmm. profound, not as uh, professionally credentialed, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, we think some of your colleagues at the Manhattan Institute are flax. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you make of that? Well, <laughs> I've heard of that argument. And, of course, right. I have to assess it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, obviously, there is a certain kind of concentration and erudition and depth of attention that pretty much only happens if you are an academic. But yeah. to tell you the truth, I frankly think that When it comes to the sorts of questions I'm interested in, which is race and history and sociology and where we're going to go in the future, so much of the work in the academy is biased towards a certain racism forever premise that I think the lack of academic profundity on the side of the think tanks and the bias in the academy are equal disadvantages, and you just have to assess the work in terms of how it works. And so, for example, in my latest book, um, Winning the Race, I do take on academic sociologists and political scientists in terms of how they view race in this country and history and what needs to be done and the role that racism plays. And I openly say in the book that I know that my research now as a linguist, it cannot replace 20 or 30 years of going to conferences and sociology, etc. But, you know, I can read and I am an obsessive. And so I went through great amounts of material. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's something wrong with my analysis in that book, then I would like to see it Proven. Now, I can't speak for my other Manhattan Institute colleagues, but frankly, I I think I'm right, or at least that the views are worth being put on the table. I became junior academic in doing that particular work. <laughs> I could practically mouth what he was going to say. That's <laughs> that is exactly what what I would say now. That's funny. Um, so. Yeah, go ahead. No, Glenn, what are you... Because, you know, what everybody's thinking at this point is, that was you saying that, and you meant it. And now, I mean, it's at the point where you are more think tanking, and with exactly the one that I was at, I mean, this is really, it's beautifully ironic, than academicing. I I, I hope hope I can say that. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, well, (laughs) I grew perhaps a little bit bored and tired of the grind, Mm. you know, and, and lost some of my enthusiasm for this excitement you feel when, you know, you get past the three rounds of referees and your piece gets in the journal and you open up the journal and there you see your name, you know, on the table of contents printed on the cover of the journal Mm -hmm. with Mm. other very stellar and distinguished people and, you know, you're a player. You're a player in the, the rarefied game of quantitative economics and the 
theory and the statistics and, and, you know, your paper's getting cited and you're getting invited to go and talk to 30 people in a seminar room somewhere about your thing, but there are 30 of the real serious people in your field and, you know, uh, and you get citations and, and it's all very good. And I, maybe I got a little bit bored with that. Maybe I outgrew it to a certain degree, or maybe I aged out, you know, my most productive years for doing quantitative work were decades ago. And, you know, I, the ideas were not as fresh and as, uh, compelling perhaps the research ideas that I had, uh, in, in this latter part of my career that I have been having, uh, you know, I don't know, you were talking about media, certainly the, the podcast medium and the, the opportunity to engage a wide range of people on in, interesting issues before an audience of serious and thoughtful, but not necessarily specialist uh, viewers and, and listeners and getting into the public uh, uh, discourse uh, with, your, with your insights and your observations. That, that's certainly, certainly a part of it. Becoming comfortable being a race specialist again. I had gone through a period where I thought I was going to turn away from doing race type stuff. And I saw technical economics as an alternative to the seemingly futile back and forth that we go through in arguing about the cultural issues. And I found myself drawn back into the cultural issues. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and all of that had something to do with that. Um, Look, I mean, I think I was right to say that the level of expertise and scientific acuity characteristic of the professional social science discourse in the journals and through the big university presses for the books is at a higher level. It, it's just a more rigorous engagement with the technical questions in the university than it is in the, in the think tank world. I think that that's true, but the engagement of the broader public shaping the uh, journalistic discourse about a problem, about how it is that political actors think about and frame the problem. Uh, this is very important work too. And reaching a million people is a very qualitatively different thing than reaching 5,000 or 10,000 people, which is the maximum that you're going to reach when you're, you're, you're doing this specialized kind of work. And, you know, you can do a little bit of both, but I mean, I, there's some examples out there. Paul Krugman, your colleague columnist at the New York Times. So he's got a Nobel Prize in economic science. He's definitely a player in the technical game, but he, at a relatively young age, I mean, I don't think he's written anything uh, noteworthy in terms of a contribution to technical economics in decades. Uh, and, and yet he's one of the most influential uh, people writing about American economic policy um, on the planet. So, you know, I, I've just somewhat taken a somewhat different path. I was snooty. I mean, my reaction to what I heard there was, oh, come on, give me a break. That's so precious. That that's so precious, you know, uh, that uh, the uh, irrigation of kind of rank. I'm pulling rank. I got a PhD. I got tenure. I'm in a, a top ten place. I'm I'm uh, you know. Have you seen my piece in Econometrica? Kind of thing like that. To people who are smart, like yourself, interesting, creative, uh, write well, engage with important questions, with something to say. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I um, I look back on that, and I'm thinking that part of where I was coming from, and I, I allude to it, was that for winning the race again, you know, nobody read it, and so how would anybody know that I did this? But in winning the race, I actually went through ten years of race articles in the two leading journals of sociology. I actually read to the extent that I could about fifty articles, everything about race, and I figure ten years is representative. And what I found was a bunch of brilliant people writing some of the most nakedly biased work I had ever encountered. It was clear that everybody was hard left going into these things, trying to make a point. It was clear that refereeing was even determined by this. So one sociologist, I have no reason not to name him, Joe Fagan, 
had a piece where he just kind of chronicled young black men's reports of racism that they had encountered. And, you know, these are real people, but there's a such thing as how, you know, how do we know that they're telling the truth? How do we know that their perspective is the only one? What happened to the obsession with numbers? What happened to the exactness? But instead, you just have, you know, the stories of, you know, the guy walks down the street and he hears people locking their car doors sequentially as he walks down the street. Did that really happen? You know, to, to be honest, I've never quite believed that one. But we're just expected to think that that's something that happens regularly to black men. And um, it was so biased that I thought, I'm sorry. I understand these people have done very hard work that I am untrained to do, but there is also naked bias here. This is no more dependable as a picture of what's going on in the real world than somebody writing op-eds in USA Today. I really, I saw no difference. And then also, there's a very simple fact. I didn't think of it this way then, but isn't it interesting how if somebody writes something that's quote-unquote conservative or contrarian for, you know, the Manhattan Institute City Journal or something like that, readable, you know, rigorous, but readable and not with a whole lot of numbers. If it's somebody who's not saying the right thing, then it's all shallow. It's not real. You haven't done the study. But if that same person writes in praise of the usable stuff, if that same kind of writing is about how factory jobs moved away and everything went to hell in Detroit in two seconds, nobody ever says, how can we trust that person praising all of this work when they're not an expert? No, then they're just preaching the proper gospel. I find that, no, I'm not aiming this at you, but I find that arrogant. So if you say something against us, you're, you're wrong because you're too shallow. If you praise us, it doesn't matter whether you fully understand us or not. You're doing God's work and you're publicizing our perfect reasoning in accessible sources. No, it, you, you can't have one without the other. Until I see people being called shallow for praising work that they don't fully understand, I can't hear it that I'm not doing the right thing by writing about academic work in accessible sources. And yes, you're right. There is something seductive. It's not money. It's audience. That when you write, one of the hardest things about being an academic, even if you're at the top of your game, is that very few people are going to read what you do all the way through. Only the people who specialize in exactly what you do. You're lucky to get beyond that. Whereas, you know, if you write for the public, and especially if you get to a certain point, you know that you're being heard by millions of people. And therefore, there's more of a reason to get out of bed for that. It's not about chasing the fame, but why do the work if so few people are going to engage it? That sustained me for decades. But I must admit, these days, I do enjoy being able to write and know that it matters, basically, that it matters. But you can't do that if you write impenetrable prose and 60-page articles. So you have to choose. Yeah, you do some, you do a little of some and a little of the other thing. But after a while, you're probably doing more of the other thing. And I'm beginning to make my peace with it. Just beginning to make my peace with it. I'm still guilty. Of All it. right. 